Chapter 12 of The Romance of Modern Invention. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Manning Cross. The Romance of Modern Invention by Archibald Williams. Chapter 12. Photographing the Invisible Most of us are able to recognize when we see them. Shadowgraphs taken by the aid of the now-famous X-rays. They generally represent some part of the structure of men, beasts, birds, or fishes. Very dark patches show the position of the bones, large and small. Lighter patches, the more solid muscles, clinging to the bony framework. And outside these again are shadowy tracks corresponding to the thinnest and most transparent portions of the fleshy envelope. In an age fruitful as this in scientific marvels, it often takes some considerable time for the public to grasp the full importance of a fresh discovery. But when in 1896 it was announced that Professor Rontgen of Würzburg had actually taken photographs of the internal organs of still-living creatures and penetrated metal and other opaque substances with a new kind of ray, great interest was manifested throughout the civilized world. On the one hand, the new photography seemed to upset popular ideas of opacity. On the other, it savored strongly of the black art, and by its easy excursions through the human body, seemed likely to revolutionize medical and surgical methods. At first, many strange ideas about the X-rays got afloat, attributing to them powers which would have surprised even their modest discoverer. It was also thought that the records were made in a camera after the ordinary manner of photography, but as a matter of fact, Rontgen used neither lens nor camera, the operation being similar to that of casting a shadow on a wall by means of a lamp. In X-radiography, a specially constructed electrically lit glass tube takes the place of the lamp, and for the wall is substituted a sensitized plate. The object to be radiographed is merely inserted between them, its various parts offering varying resistance to the rays, so that the plate is affected unequally, and after exposure may be developed and printed from it the usual way. Photographs obtained by using X-rays are therefore properly called shadowgraphs or skyographs. The discovery that has made Professor Ronchin famous is, like many great discoveries, based upon the labors of other men in the same field. Geisler whose vacuum tubes are so well known for their striking color effects, had already noticed that electric discharges sent through very much rarefied air or gases produced beautiful glows. Sir William Crookes, following the same line of research and reducing with a Sprengel air pump the internal pressure of the tubes to one in one hundred thousand of an atmosphere, found that a luminous glow streamed from the cathode, or negative pole, in a straight line, heating and rendering phosphorescent anything that it met. 
Crookes regarded the glow as composed of radiant matter and explained its existence as follows. The airy particles inside the tube, being few in number, are able to move about with far greater freedom than in the tightly packed atmosphere outside the tube. A particle, on reaching the cathode, is repelled violently by it in a straight line. To bombard another particle, the walls of the tube, or any object set up in its path, the sudden arrest of motion being converted into light and heat. By means of special tubes, he proved that the radiant matter could turn little veins, and that the flow continued even when the terminals of the shocking coil were outside the glass, thus meeting the contention of Peluge that the radiant matter was nothing more than small particles of platinum torn from the terminals. He also showed that, when intercepted, radiant matter cast a shadow, the intercepting object receiving the energy of the bombardment, but that when the obstruction was removed, the hitherto sheltered part of the glass wall of the tube glowed with a brighter phosphorescence than the part which had become tired by prolonged bombardment. Experiments further revealed the fact that the shaft of cathode rays could be deflected by a magnet from their course, and that they affected an ordinary photographic plate exposed to them. In 1894, Lenart, a Hungarian and pupil of the famous Hertz, fitted a crook's tube with a window of aluminum in its side, replacing a part of the glass, and saw that the course of the rays could be traced through the outside air. From this it was evident that something else than matter must be present in the shaft of energy sent from the negative terminal of the tube, as there was no direct communication between the interior and the exterior of the tube to account for the external phosphorescence. Whatever was the nature of the rays, he succeeded in making them penetrate and impress themselves on a sensitized plate enclosed in a metal box. Then, in 1896, came Ronchin's great discovery that the rays from a crook's tube, after traversing the glass, could pierce opaque matter. He covered the tube with thick cardboard, but found that it would still cast the shadows of books, cards, wood, metals, the human hand, etc., onto a photographic plate, even at the distance of some feet. The rays would also pass through the wood, metal, or bones in course of time. But certain bodies, notably metals, offered a much greater resistance than others, such as wood, leather, and paper. Professor Ronchin crowned his efforts by showing that a skeleton could be shadowgraphed while its owner was still alive. Naturally, everybody wished to know not only what the rays could do, but what they were. Ronchin, not being able to identify them with any known rays, took refuge in the algebraical symbol of the unknown quantity and dubbed them X-rays. He discovered this much, however, that they were invisible to the eye under ordinary conditions, that they traveled in straight lines only, passing through a prism, water, or other refracting bodies without turning aside from their path, and that a magnet exerted no power over them. This last fact was sufficient of itself to prevent their confusion with the radiant matter cathode rays of the tube. Ronchin thought, nevertheless, that they might be the cathode rays transmuted in some manner by their passage through the glass, 
so as to resemble in their motion sound waves, i.e. moving straight forward and not swaying from side to side in a series of zigzags. The existence of such ether waves had for some time before been suspected by Lord Kelvin. Other authorities have other theories. We may mention the view that X represents the ultraviolet rays of the spectrum, caused by vibrations of such extreme rapidity as to be imperceptible to the human eye, just as sounds of extremely high pitch are inaudible to the ear. This theory is, to a certain extent, upheld by the behavior of the photographic plate, which is least affected by the colors of the spectrum at the red end and most by those at the violet end. A photographer is able to use red or orange light in his dark room because his plates cannot see them, though he can, whereas the reverse would be the case with X-rays. This ultraviolet theory claims for X-rays a rate of ether vibration of trillions of waves per second. An alternative theory is to relegate the rays to the gap in the scale of ether waves between heat waves and light waves, but this does not explain any more satisfactorily than the other, the peculiar phenomenon of non-refraction. The apparatus employed in X-photography consists of a crook's tube of a special type, a powerful shocking or induction coil, a fluorescent screen and photographic plates and appliances for developing, etc., besides a supply of high-pressure electricity derived from the main, a small dynamo, or batteries. A crook's tube is four to five inches in diameter, globular in its middle portion, but tapering away towards each end. Through one extremity is led a platinum wire, terminating in a saucer-shaped platinum plate an inch or so across. At the focus of this, the negative terminal, is fixed a platinum plate at an angle to the path of the rays so as to deflect them through the side of the tube. The positive terminal penetrates the glass at one side. The tube contains, as we have seen, a very tiny residue of air. If this were entirely exhausted, the action of the tube would cease, so that some tubes are so arranged that when rarefaction becomes too high, the passage of an electrical current through small bars of chemicals, whose ends project through the sides of the tube, liberates gas from the bars in sufficient quantity to render the tube active again. When the Ruhmkorff induction coil is joined to the electric circuit, a series of violent discharges of great rapidity occur between the tube terminals, resembling in their power the discharge of a Leyden jar, though for want of a dense atmosphere the brilliant spark has been replaced by a glow and brush light in the tube. The coil is of large dimensions, capable of passing a spark across an air gap of 10 to 12 inches. It will perhaps increase the reader's respect for X-rays to learn that a coil of proper size contains upwards of 13 miles of wire, though indeed this quantity is nothing in comparison with the 150 miles wound on the huge inductorium formerly exhibited at the London Polytechnic. If we were invited to an X-ray demonstration, we should find the operator and his apparatus in a darkened room. He turns on the current, and the darkness is broken 
by a velvety glow surrounding the negative terminal, which gradually extends until the whole tube becomes clothed in a green phosphorescence. A sharply defined line athwart the tube separates the shadowed part behind the receiving plate at the negative focus, now intensely hot, from that on which the reflected rays fall directly. One of us is now invited to extend a hand close to the tube. The operator then holds on the near side of the hand his fluorescent screen, which is nothing more than a framework, supporting a paper smeared on one side with platino-cyanide of barium, a chemical that, in common with several others, was discovered by Salvioni of Perugia to be sensitive to the rays and able to make them visible to the human eye. The value of the screen to the X-radiographer is that of the ground glass plate to the ordinary photographer, as it allows him to see exactly what things are before the sensitized plate is brought into position and in fact largely obviates the necessity for making a permanent record. The screen shows clearly and in full detail all the bones of the hand, so clearly that one is almost irresistibly drawn to peep behind to see if a real hand is there. One of us now extends an arm, and the screen shows us the ulna and the radius working round each other, now both visible, now one obscuring the other. On presenting the body to the course of the rays, a remarkable shadow is cast onto the screen. The spinal column and the ribs, the action of the heart and lungs, are seen quite distinctly. A deep breath causes the movement of a dark mass, the liver. There is no privacy in presence of the rays. The enlarged heart, the diseased lung, the ulcerated liver betrays itself at once. In a second of time, the phosphorescent screen reveals what might balk medical examination for months. If a photographic slide containing a dry plate be substituted for the focusing screen, the rays soon penetrate any covering in which the plate may be wrapped to protect it from ordinary light rays. The process of taking a shadowgraph may therefore be conducted in broad daylight, which is under certain conditions a great advantage, though the sensitiveness of plates exposed to Röntgen rays entails special care being taken of them when they are not in use. In the early days of X-radiography, an exposure of some minutes was necessary to secure a negative, but now, thanks to the improvements in the tubes, a few seconds is often sufficient. The discovery of the X-rays is a great discovery, because it has done much to promote the noblest possible cause, the alleviation of human suffering. Not everybody will appreciate a more rapid mode of telegraphy or a new method of spinning yarn, but the dullest intellect will give due credit to a scientific process that helps to save life and limb. Who among us is not liable to break an arm or leg, or suffer from internal injuries invisible to the eye? Who among us, therefore, should not be thankful on reflecting that, in event of such a mishap, the X-rays will be at hand to show just what the trouble is, how to deal with it, and how far the healing advances day by day? The X-ray apparatus is now as necessary for the proper equipment of a hospital as a camera for that of a photographic studio. 
It is especially welcome in the hospitals, which accompany an army into the field. Since May 1896, many a wounded soldier has had reason to bless the patient work that led to the discovery at Würzburg. The Greek War, the war in Cuba, the Tyra Campaign, the Egyptian Campaign, and the war in South Africa have given a quick succession of fine opportunities for putting the new photography to the test. There is now small excuse for the useless and agonizing probings that once added to the dangers and horrors of the military hospital. Even if the X-ray equipment by reason of its weight cannot conveniently be kept at the front of a rapidly moving army, it can be set up in the advanced or base hospitals, whither the wounded are sent after a first rough dressing of their injuries. The medical staff there subject their patients to the searching rays, are able to record the exact position of a bullet or shell fragment and the damage it has done, and by promptly removing the intruder to greatly lessen its power to harm. The Ronchin Ray has added to the surgeon's armory a powerful weapon. Its possibilities are not yet fully known, but there can be no doubt that it marks a new epoch in surgical work, and for this reason, Professor Ronchin deserves to rank with Harvey, the discoverer of the blood circulation, with Jenner, the father of vaccination, and with Sir James Young Simpson, the first doctor to use chloroform as an anesthetic. End of chapter 12. Recorded by Manning Cross.